Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed is the number one source of hires. So join the over 3 million businesses worldwide already using it. If you're hiring, then you need Indeed. Get started with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply and by First Leaf. First Leaf is a better way to discover wine that you'll love at a fraction of the retail price. You can save time, money, and stress. Join today and get six bottles of wine for just $29.95 plus free shipping at tryfirstleaf.com gold. Well, the Dow settled the day down 271 points, pretty much closing out the session on the low of the day, finishing a down week on a down note. The Dow was down just under 2% on the week. S&P, not quite as bad, only down by 1.7%. NASDAQ fared even better. Remember, people are taking refuge in these momentum stocks that they somehow believe are safe havens. So the NASDAQ only down 1.2%. The worst of the indexes was the Russell 2000, again, the most economically sensitive to the U.S. That index down 2.8% on the week. I think the catalyst for today's decline was another hotter-than-expected inflation report. We got the producer price index for August, and this is the ninth consecutive monthly PPI where the number came out higher than what had been expected. So every single report so far in 2021 has beaten estimates and the final month of 2020, which was December. So there's your nine-month streak. The consensus was for a 0.6% rise in the headline number, and that was a big drop from the 1% from the prior month. And the consensus was correct, in that August was not as bad as July, but we still exceeded the expectation. The number came in at 0.7%. On a year-over-year basis, we actually hit the expectation on the nose. They were looking for 8.3, and we got 8.3. But that is still an upward move from the 7.8% year-over-year rate that we were sporting in July. But look at the core taking out food and energy. They were looking for a gain of 0.5, which would have been half of the prior month's 1% gain. It was less than 1%, but at 0.6, it came out higher than estimates. And look at the year-over-year core, up 7.3%, well above the 6.6% that had been expected and even more above the 6.2% from the prior month's year-over-year reading. So there is no indication in these monthly data points that any of this is transitory. There is nothing about this trend that has been in motion all year that is slowing down. And in fact, if you just look at the numbers on the year, the producer price index is already up by 7% during the first eight months of 2021. And if you annualize that rate, that means over a 12-month period, we're looking at a 10.5% increase in producer prices in one year. Now, this is not just slightly above 2%, which the Fed claims is its target. I mean, we are miles above 2%. We're actually five times greater than 2%. Now, of course, this is not the CPI, it's the PPI. And supposedly the Fed is paying much more attention to the CPI. So they only care about the inflation when it gets passed on to the consumer. Apparently they don't care if it gets eaten by the producer. Well, the producers aren't going to eat it much longer. I think the main reason that the CPI is not moving up as much as the PPI, I think it's probably going to come in at around maybe 6 7% for 2021, not the 10%, is because the producers have been reluctant to pass on these price hikes. 
they're as convinced as the government that it's transitory. At least they've been hoping that the government was right and that it's transitory. But I think by the end of the year, they're going to throw in the towel on the transitory narrative and they're going to accept reality that these increases are not only here to stay, but they're going to get worse and they've got a lot of catching up to do. Not only are they going to jack up prices in 2022 to make sure they don't keep losing money on reduced margins, but I think they're going to try to recover some of the margins that they lost in 2021 by not raising prices enough. So it's going to be a big shock. 2022, I think consumers are going to see even bigger price hikes than they saw in 2021, and we're already seeing big price hikes. And so I think these numbers are one reason why we saw some weakness in the stock market today, because obviously to the extent that we have more inflation, then the Fed is going to have to fight the inflation with rate hikes or starting the taper sooner rather than later. And so that weighed a bit on bonds, bond prices falling, yields rising, and the stock market going down. But you know, throughout the week, we got more inflation news or negative news. Look at the beige book that came out on Wednesday. And if you read through the Fed's assessment and you have all the regional banks that are weighing in on this beige book and everybody is talking about the widespread supply shortages and they're blaming these widespread supply shortages for the increases in prices, but they're also claiming that it's transitory. They're sticking to that story because they're saying that these shortages are due to temporary COVID-related reopening factors, and therefore they're not concerned about what they're seeing in prices. But the most amazing thing about the Beige Book is not that everybody is convinced that it's a supply shortage and that it's transitory. It's that none of these banks are talking about what's going on in money supply. I mean, talk about the elephant in the room. If Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And you have this record increase in money supply. And then you also have this big increase in consumer prices. How can you not bring up the possibility that all of this money printing is potentially responsible for prices going up? I mean, the Fed is the one that's creating all the money. They're responsible for the big increase in the money supply. Now they can claim it was necessary to finance all this government spending, but isn't it possible that that's the reason that prices are going up? In fact, maybe that's why it looks like there is a supply shortage because whenever there is a surplus of money, there is automatically a shortage of stuff because the government can print money very easily. It's a whole nother thing to produce stuff because the Fed doesn't actually produce any stuff to buy with the money they print. They just print the money. And if the economy is not capable of producing the goods to go with the money, then they can always claim, well, it's a supply shortage. Yeah, everybody's got all this money to buy stuff, but we haven't made anything. But the reality is, it's not that there's a shortage of supply. I mean, there's always a shortage of supply. We don't have an unlimited amount of stuff. And so we have to ration the supply with a price. And the higher the money supply, the more money there is in circulation, the higher the price that's required to ration that supply. So that's what's going on. But all of these Fed guys are overlooking the fact that money supply is what's going through the roof. And they're simply focusing on good supply and saying, hey, we have a shortage. Of course, there's always a shortage. Every time governments create a lot of money, it's easy to say the problem is that there's not enough stuff, not that there's too much money, but it's obvious that it's too much money because you never have enough stuff because resources are constrained. And just because you print more money doesn't mean there's more stuff to buy. All that it means is prices have to go up so that the supply of goods can then be rationed in the market at a higher price. In fact, you had on the same day, Brian DC, who is the director of the White House National Economic Council. See, he came out and he tried to explain away the rising consumer prices. And he was particularly talking about groceries. And he tried to say, well, you know what? If you don't count beef, pork, or poultry, well then, you know, grocery prices are not moving up 
by anything that's beyond the historic norms, which is so ridiculous because first of all, he's only talking about food and then he wants to throw out all the meat. So like, I guess if you're a vegetarian, then it's no big deal. But if you like to eat meat as a protein source, then you have these huge price increases. But if we ignore all of these huge price increases, well, then it's, uh, it's no big deal. And, you know, this is what the government always wants to do. Ignore the stuff that's going up and just focus on the stuff that's not, except everything's going up. It's just that some things are going up a lot more and the government wants us to ignore that. Now, I wonder if this guy was able to try the same thing with his parents, you know, when he when he brought home his report card and let's say he had, you know, a few high marks and then maybe he got a D or an F or something. And he said, well, you know, but I have a great GPA. If you just throw out that D I got in geometry or you throw out the, the F I got in English and just focus on my other grades, hey, I did great. So let's ignore that. Except you can't throw out the bad grades. You have to take into account all the grades when you are factoring in your grade point average. And you have to look at all of the prices that are going up. You can't throw out the ones that are going up and just focus on the ones that aren't because pretty soon you throw out everything and you're left with one item that hasn't gone up and you can always claim, yeah, but look at this one item, right? It's not going up that much. And I think what made it even worse is the Biden administration. I was reading all these articles. They're actually trying to blame the companies, right? The the beef or the poultry, these processing companies or any of the companies that are involved in the production and, and distribution of these products, they're trying to blame these companies for the price increases. And they want to conduct investigations to try to look into these price hikes to figure out like, why are these companies raising these prices? What's going on? Is this some kind of conspiracy to gouge the public? And again, governments always do this. They create inflation and then they try to shift the blame to the public. And it's very easy to blame the companies that are raising the prices, but the companies have no choice because their own prices, their costs are also going up and all they're doing is passing on their higher costs to the end consumer. It's not their fault. It is the government's fault. The government is creating the inflation. But this is the primary reason why the government redefined inflation from an expansion of the money supply to an increase in prices. Because when you properly define inflation as an expansion of the money supply, well, you know that that's not the private sector's fault. That's not the pork producers or the beef processors fault because he's not expanding the money supply. It's the Federal Reserve that's doing that, right? So when you properly define inflation, you know exactly who's causing it. But when you pretend inflation is rising prices, well, then it's easy to blame the price increase on the people who are raising the prices, which are the businesses, which serves the government's narrative anyway, because they always want to blame capitalism for all the problems they create. So they can blame inflation on the free market, on those greedy businessmen who are gouging their customers when the real source of the inflation is government itself. And then, of course, well, what is the solution? Well, we need more government. No business can afford to pay for things that they don't need. At Indeed, you only pay for the quality candidates that meet your must-have job requirements. When hiring gets hard, that's when you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can get all your hiring done in just one place, even the interviewing. So don't just hope the perfect candidate happens to find you. Find them with Indeed's hiring tools that help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. Indeed's Instant Match immediately delivers quality candidates whose resumes online fit your job description. You can even invite qualified applicants to apply right away. And according to Indeed data, the candidates you invite are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who simply see it in a search. Plus, with Instant Match, data shows that 90% of employers get quality candidates from Indeed's Instant Resume database as soon as their sponsored job appears. And according to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. So join the over 3 million businesses worldwide 
who are already using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. But once again, the price of gold and silver, of course, reacted negatively to all this inflation talk and hotter than expected inflation news. Price of gold down just over 2% on the week, about a similar decline to what we saw in the Dow Jones. Gold stocks did a little bit worse, although the GDX for a change was only down 2%, about in line with the gold price. Those are the senior producers, but the juniors, the GDXJ, that index was down 3.5%. But if you go back to the end of May, because the price of gold has pretty much unchanged since the end of May. It's exactly where it is now is where it ended the month of May. Yet the GDX is down 10% during that time period and the GDXJ is down 15%. Why? Well, because gold traders are expecting the price of gold to drop. Even though the price of gold isn't falling at all, it is the belief of the markets that it will fall. And why? It's the inflation. Everybody believes that these hotter than expected inflation numbers mean the Fed is gonna be more aggressive, it's gonna taper sooner rather than later, it's gonna start hiking rates sooner rather than later, and this hawkish Fed that is gonna be fighting inflation is gonna be bad for gold. But somehow, it's not gonna be bad for the economy. Because you have to believe, in order to think that rising inflation is bad for gold, you have to think that the Fed could fight the inflation without harming the economy. Because if the Fed jacks up interest rates to fight inflation, and the result of that is the markets tank and the economy goes into recession, well, the Fed immediately reverses those policies, goes back to zero, and ramps up QE. All of that is very bullish for gold. So in order to be bearish, you have to think that not only is the Fed going to fight inflation and win, but that there will be no collateral damage in the market or the economy, which is complete nonsense because all that is impossible. And when the markets realize that they're betting on the impossible, then they're going to start reversing these trades and you're going to see a big move up in gold, but an even bigger move up in these mining stocks. And in the meantime, take advantage. Some of these junior mining stocks today hit new 52-week lows. I would just continue to buy what everybody is getting rid of, right? They're throwing out all the babies with the bathwater here. So keep on buying. Again, the best way to do it is through a diversified portfolio. I continue to recommend my gold fund, the Euro Pacific Gold Fund. You can buy it directly off my website at EPAC Funds, epacfunds.com. You can buy it at any of the discount brokers that you may already have an account, or you can buy it through your Euro Pacific Capital representative or your EPAM representative. So buy some more. Also, if you don't want to be in a fund, we do offer separately managed accounts in the gold sector. I think, again, the markets are seriously mispricing these assets. They have no idea what is actually going to be happening with Fed policy, and they have even less idea as to what's going to be happening with inflation. And as they figure it out, they're going to be bidding these prices up, and you want to get in before that happens. And don't worry if the market goes down after you buy, because I think when gold moves, it's going to be an explosive move, and these prices are going to take off, and very few people who aren't already aboard the train are going to have the ability to get on. So you just got to get on now to make sure that you have a seat and then buckle up, because I think it's going to be one hell of a ride. And I know a lot of you out there are going to say, well, the reason that gold's not going up and these gold stocks are going down is because everybody is buying Bitcoin. That's not the case. I mean, there are some people that might be buying Bitcoin instead of gold and gold stocks, but not enough to really disrupt the market. What is possible is that the money that would have ordinarily gone into gold or gold stocks was helping to bid up the price of Bitcoin. But I don't think the small amount of money that Bitcoin was able to draw out of the gold market was enough to move the needle the way it is the other way around. But certainly this week, Bitcoin got the stuffing kicked out of it. I mean, Bitcoin had a much bigger down week than gold did. So clearly people weren't selling gold to buy Bitcoin this week. In fact, Bitcoin had a horrible week. And I know the week isn't over for Bitcoin itself because it trades on Saturday. But if you look at the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, this is the most heavily traded proxy on 
the U.S. stock market. GBTC is the ticker, and I've talked about the Grayscale Trust quite a bit. It was down almost 10% on the week. But more important than the 10% drop was the technical pattern because it had an outside week to the downside, meaning that the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, this week, it took out the high from the prior week, and then it closed below the low of the prior week. So an outside reversal week to the downside. And in fact, I think the same pattern may repeat on a monthly level because we've already taken out the August high in September. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. If GBTC closes below the August low in September, not only will we have registered an outside reversal week, we will have registered an outside reversal month. Pretty ominous stuff technically. And what happened this week? Well, on Tuesday, we finally got El Salvador officially adopt Bitcoin as a national currency on par with the U.S. dollar. So there are now two forms of legal tender in El Salvador, U.S. dollar being one and now Bitcoin. And there was a lot of hype leading up to Tuesday's inauguration day for Bitcoin. And this was another classic pump and dump, buy the rumor, sell the fact, perfectly executed by these Bitcoin whales because they were getting everybody excited about Tuesday. In fact, everybody was saying you got to buy Bitcoin in solidarity, you know, because the government there, the El Salvador government is giving everybody who opens up a wallet $30 worth of free Bitcoin. Of course, it's not free. The taxpayers had to come up with the money to buy the Bitcoin. But once you open up your wallet, you get this $30 worth of Bitcoin deposited there. And so people were online saying, hey, everybody in the world should buy $30 too, right? To try to pump up the price. Well, as soon as Tuesday came around and Bitcoin was above $52,000, all the pumpers started a dump. They sold the fact after having highly anticipated the news beforehand and Bitcoin prices collapsed by better than 15% in less than one hour. Huge decline. Now, of course, people bought the dip, including El Salvador that announced they bought even more Bitcoin on the dip. So now they have even more to lose on the next decline, which could be to a much lower level than the dip that they thought they were getting a bargain on. But to me, this had all the hallmarks of the classic pump and dump and that's exactly what happened. Meanwhile, you still have all these Bitcoin hodlers and pumpers claiming that the decline was just an orchestrated attempt by the whales to flush out all the little guys because they want to get their coins. That's a bunch of nonsense. The whales aren't trying to flush anybody out. They want all the little guys swimming around in the tank. All the minnows, those are the suckers. These are the bag holders. The whales want the minnows to hold on to their Bitcoin. They want the minnows to keep buying Bitcoin because that's the only way they can get out. And sometimes when they get out in a big way, they make a big splash and you see this big decline. But that's not because they want your Bitcoin. They want your dollars. They're trying to get people to buy their Bitcoin so that they can get dollars because on paper, they have huge profits because they bought Bitcoin a long time ago when it was a lot cheaper and now they want to cash out. But the only way they can cash out is by making sure other people keep putting cash in. And they want to make sure that people who are holding on don't sell because they don't want other sellers to compete with them. So don't believe this is not a bunch of nonsense where they're trying to get your coins. They're trying to get your dollars. They want you to keep your Bitcoin. Also, one more piece of economic news that I wanted to point out was the JOLTS report that came out 
Tuesday. And what the JOLTS report shows you is the number of unfilled jobs in the market. How many people are employers trying to hire, right? How many job openings do they have that haven't been filled? And the prior month was over 10 million, which I think in and of itself was a record. It was 10.073 million. And they revised that upward to 10.185 million. The consensus was for another 10 million month, even actually. But we almost hit 11 million. New record for the jolts, 10.934 million unfilled jobs. I mean, this actually greatly exceeds the number of people the government claims are officially unemployed. I think there's 8.384 million that are officially unemployed, right? These are people who want jobs and say they can't find them. Well, there are 2.23 million more jobs available than that. So in theory, all of these people should be able to take those jobs, but they're not doing it. Now, why aren't they doing it? Well, there's two possible reasons. One is that unemployment is more lucrative, that they'd rather collect unemployment, especially with these enhanced benefits, than go and work for a living and get paid. Now, these enhanced benefits went away on Labor Day, so maybe we'll start to see people deciding that now they'll take the jobs that they were turning down in the past, so maybe the number will come down. But also, I think another part of the problem is that a lot of Americans are just not qualified for these jobs. So you have employers who want to hire workers. The problem is American workers aren't qualified for the jobs. They don't have the skills that the employers need. And if they are qualified, they can't do the job at a wage that is viable for the employer. And so there's a mismatch where the employer wants to pay a certain wage, but that wage is too low for somebody who actually has the ability to do the job to take the job. And maybe if the employer had to pay more, well, then it would no longer be viable because he couldn't pass on the required price hikes to customers. Now, I actually think that going forward at some point, you are going to see a big decline in the number of job openings because I think a lot of employers are going to realize that they don't need as many workers because right now they think they need workers because there is a lot of demand for a lot of these products. But I think as inflation really works its way through the system and a lot of businesses end up jacking prices way up, demand for the products is going to come down. So these businesses aren't going to need as many workers because they're not going to be selling as much stuff. I mean, they're going to be selling stuff at much higher prices. So the net dollar amount of the sales may go up, but it's not because people are buying more. It's because they're paying more. And if that's the case, they're not going to need as many employees as they think. And so I think these job openings are going to fall. But in the meantime, the markets are misinterpreting all of these unfilled jobs as some bullish sign for the economy. Hey, we got such a strong economy. We got more jobs than we need. The fact of the matter is we have such a dysfunctional economy that despite the fact that we have all these job openings, we have all these people who are unemployed, we have a labor shortage by design because the government is the source of the shortage because of bad fiscal policy that is encouraging people not to return to work. Who hasn't been there? You're standing in the wine aisle, staring at the shelves. What do you buy? Do you want a California red? Maybe one from Oregon. How about trying something organic? Maybe just one with a really cool looking label. You know, the whole process can be pretty overwhelming, particularly for the average guy or gal who really isn't a wine expert. And that's why you should be thankful that First Leaf is here to solve those problems. It's a better way to discover wine and do it at a fraction of the price that you'd pay at a store. Thankfully, now there's First Leaf. It's a better way to discover wine and at a fraction of the price that you'd find at a typical retail store. First Leaf is a fully customizable wine club that sends curated boxes of wine that are perfect for you right to your front door. And they have more award-winning wines than anyone else. With First Leaf, there's no guesswork. No misguided recommendations from an employee who doesn't know you, doesn't know what you like, and there's no frustration at all on your part. Each wine shipment is entirely customized to your unique palate and preferences. Unlike big box wine membership, First Leaf uses a -a one-of-a-kind algorithm and your feedback to curate future wine recommendations. The more wines you taste and review, the better your shipments will get. 
First Leaf works directly with the world's best winemakers, not only to find the best wines available, but to pass on the sweet savings to you. Savings as high as 60% off the retail price. So save time, money, and stress with First Leaf, the wine club designed specifically with you in mind. Join today and you'll get six bottles of wine for just $29.95 plus free shipping. Just go to tryfirstleaf.com slash gold. That's six bottles of wine for just $29.95 and free shipping at tryfirstleaf.com slash gold. I want to switch gears now and talk a little politics, especially regarding the feigned outrage of the left, in particular, those in the mainstream media. Anytime there's the slightest whiff of a potential hate crime, when somebody who happens to be white does something to somebody else who happens to be black and race is somehow a motivational factor, they jump all over it. Yet here, we've just seen probably one of the best examples I've ever actually seen of a legitimate hate crime. If it's real, of course, I will leave open the possibility that it was staged, but the left never seems to acknowledge that possibility whenever they see what looks like a hate crime. They always assume the worst, and so they should be assuming the worst in this case, but not only are they not assuming the worst, they're not even covering the story. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, I am referring to the incident that happened a couple of days ago with Larry Elder, who is a friend of mine and anybody who has been a long-term listener to my podcast. Before I did the podcast, I did a weekly radio show, and Larry Elder was one of my regular substitute hosts when I was out of town and I couldn't do the show because I was committed to doing two hours, five days a week. And in fact, I've been a fan of Larry Elder much longer than anyone's been a fan of mine. I mean, I was listening to him when I was in my 20s living in Los Angeles. So I'm a big Larry Elder fan. I wish him the best in his long shot attempt to become the next governor of California. But Newsom, even if he is recalled, the overwhelming odds favor that he'll end up being elected anyway in the runoff because there are so many people in the field Larry Elder may be leading among, I don't know how many, 20, 30, 40 other candidates, but he's not going to get enough votes to beat Newsom. So Newsom's probably going to be recalled, maybe, but then reelected anyway. So none of it's going to matter. But I like the fact that Larry Elder is out there making an influence. And apparently he's making such an influence that on a recent outing, he was the subject of a racially motivated hate crime. In fact, even the police in LA County are acknowledging that this looks like a hate crime, yet the media is not even covering it. What happened is while Larry was walking down the street, I'm not really sure he was participating in some type of event and he was surrounded by an entourage, so he wasn't all by himself and he didn't get hurt. But what happened was a white woman rode up behind Larry Elder on a bicycle and threw eggs at his back. So he didn't get harmed. I mean, maybe his clothing got messed up a bit. But what makes this an obvious hate crime is that the woman on the bicycle, the white woman, had a mask on. And the mask was a gorilla head. Now, obviously, if she wanted to hide her identity, there are a lot of masks that she could have worn other than a gorilla. Now, clearly, if this white woman had thrown eggs at a black man who happened to be a Democrat, not a Republican, that's exactly what the media would say. Well, obviously, the gorilla is a reference to the fact that Larry Elder, or not Larry Elder, but this other black guy who was not Larry Elder, was black. And the person is a racist, and that person is equating being an African-American with being a gorilla, and that's why this person had a gorilla mask, because she was a racist, and this was a racially motivated egging, it was violence, it was a hate crime, and it needs to be prosecuted. That's what everybody would be saying. And many times when the left is sure that it's a hate crime and it's racially motivated, you don't even have this much evidence. I mean, I said a minute ago that it could be fake, right? Maybe that woman is really a Republican dressed up in that mask to try to make Democrats look bad 
by trying to paint Democrats as racist too. And so the whole thing is staged and it was the intent of the woman to try to falsely portray Democrats as being racist. But I think the odds of that in this case are pretty slim. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I think it's highly improbable. It's more likely that this woman was a Democrat who does not like Larry Elder's policies and also happens to be racist, which is why she's wearing this gorilla mask. But nobody in the media is covering this event at all. I mean, nobody would even know about it, I think, but for Fox News, they happen to cover it. But nobody else, MSNBC isn't covering it, CNN isn't covering it, all the major ABC, NBC, CBS, nobody is covering this story. Why? Again, imagine if Larry Elder was a black Democrat and the exact same thing happened. This is all you'd be hearing about. It would be nonstop news right now. Why isn't it? Because of the political parties of the people involved. And what that really proves is that the media, the left, they don't really give a damn about racism. It's politics. Why do they always try to blow something up when they think something is racially motivated? Because it advances a political agenda that paints the opposition as a bunch of racists. So they're not really interested in racist stories or examples of racism. They're only interested in examples of racism that further their own political agenda, which means they're not really outraged by the racism. They're just exploiting it to further their agenda, which is why when the shoe is on the other foot, when you actually have an example of racism, right? Not one that you even have to make up. This is legitimate and it's captured on film. They don't want to exploit this. They want to bury it because it runs counter to their narrative because it portrays a Democrat as racist and the Republican who happens to be black is the victim of the racism and that they want to keep under wraps because they don't want to destroy the narrative that it's Republicans who are racist. And so they want to bury actual examples of racism on the part of Democrats. But when they think the racism is from a Trump supporter or somebody like that, then they're going to blow the whole thing out of proportion. Even if they have less actual evidence that something is racially motivated than the evidence we have right here, which is clearly obvious. Anyway, now that I'm talking about politics, though, I want to switch to a higher gear and talk about President Biden and the speech that he gave yesterday where he outlined the new vaccine mandate. And so what President Biden is now saying is that all federal employees need to be vaccinated and any company that contracts with the federal government all of their employees need to be vaccinated. And in addition, if you are a private employer and you employ, I think the cutoff is 100 workers, so more than 100 or 100 or more workers, then you need to require all of your employees to get vaccinated. Now, of course, there is no exception for any legitimate objection to being vaccinated, including somebody who has had COVID and recovered and therefore has a natural immunity and so doesn't need a vaccine, there is no differentiation there. So even if you've got COVID and recovered, if you work for a private company with 100 employees or if you work for the government or a contractor, you still need to get the vaccine. Well, first, I want to talk about the government requiring its own employees to be vaccinated. Now, if you're a government employee and you work for the government, Well, if the government says a condition of employment is being vaccinated, well, that's legal. I don't think that's unconstitutional. I think it's bad. I think it's bad health policy, and I'll get to that momentarily. But as far as a constitutional, I think employers have the right to set the conditions under which they're employing people. And so if the federal government wants to decide that vaccination is a condition that they require for somebody to work for them, then I think they have a right to do that. Now, as far as the contractors, I would say on a go forward basis, if the government wants to only award a contract to a contractor that can certify that all of their workers are vaccinated, I think that's the government's prerogative. Again, I don't think it's the right policy, but I don't necessarily think it's unconstitutional, at least not on its face. 
But what I do think would be unconstitutional would be to apply that retroactively to contractors who have already been contracted. There's a legal binding contract where a contractor agreed to deliver a service and now it's being paid for that service to come back and alter the terms of those contracts by now retroactively saying, oh, by the way, you also have to have all your employees vaccinated. I don't think that's legal. So I think it would only be legal on a prospective basis for new contracts that the government enters into where the counterparty in the private sector knows going in that if I agree to this contract, I'm agreeing to the vaccinations. But for the contracts that already exist, I don't think the government could just unilaterally abrogate those contracts just because it decides that it wants people to be vaccinated. But the most egregious example of unconstitutional overreach is the order that companies that employ over 100 workers must require their workers as a condition of employment to be vaccinated or face outrageous penalties, uh, civil penalties for each non-vaccinated employee, that I think is totally unconstitutional. Now, one thing too that you'll know is the government is not trying to force individuals to be vaccinated because maybe they know that's clearly unconstitutional. If the government were to require each individual to be vaccinated and then punish the individual directly with a fine for not getting vaccinated, I think they realize that that's such a stretch that no court would allow that. They're trying to do an end run around the Constitution, as they often do, by putting the onus on employers. Because remember, the government thinks they can tell employers to do whatever they want. And I've talked about that on this podcast before, especially the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution, which has been totally blown out of proportion to basically give the government power to regulate any business any way they want to, which has nothing to do with the actual meaning of the Commerce Clause. And I've talked about that on a lot of my Independence Day, what it means to be American. So you got a lot of other podcasts where you can listen to my explanation of the Commerce Clause. I don't have time to get into it now. But what they're doing here is they're requiring the employers because they've already got the camel's nose under the tent when it comes to forcing employers to do stuff. The minimum wage is a perfect example. The government says, hey, we don't care what employers and employees want. We're going to force employers to pay this minimum wage. Otherwise, they're breaking the law. They also tell employers, hey, if you're going to hire people, you can't discriminate. You can't discriminate based on race, on age, on sex, on sexual orientation. So if you can dictate terms of employment, well, then you can say, oh, and also you can't hire somebody who hasn't been vaccinated. Right? If they have some motivation of it's for the greater good, it's for the national health, just like we need to outlaw discrimination because it makes the country fairer and a nicer place to live or whatever, they can say we're doing the same thing with vaccinations and the same power that we have to impose these other requirements is the reason that we now can force employers to require their employees to be vaccinated. But of course, what this is, is a backdoor way of forcing the individuals themselves to get vaccinated. And for that reason alone, it should be unconstitutional because people have to work. I mean, you, the, the government can't say, hey, we're not requiring you to get vaccinated. We're just saying that you can't get a job unless you are vaccinated. Well, then you have no choice. You end up having to get vaccinated because you need your job because you need to pay your bills. And what's happening on the local levels, and again, states are not bound by the federal constitution in this respect, in my opinion, I think they're bound by their own individual state constitutions. But a lot of the penalties on the state level are not only on employers, but on business owners, because they're requiring the business owners to make sure their customers are vaccinated. And if a customer unvaccinated is found right in a establishment that's supposed to keep them out, the customer isn't the one that gets fined. It's the business owner who gets fined because he's violating this rule. So all of this, again, is an attack on the entrepreneur. It's an attack on the employer and the business owner, which was the topic of my last podcast, how difficult it is to be an employer. You've got a target on your back. And now you have both the federal government and the local governments firing at these employers with these new vaccine mandates. But here's the other part about this and why I said this is bad policy. Even if I thought it was constitutional to require everybody to get vaccinated, I think it's a mistake. I mean, everybody wants to talk about following the science. Well, if you follow the science, you will realize that not everybody should be vaccinated. 
There was recently a study in Israel, and this I think is a definitive study on vaccinations versus natural immunities. And it's a comprehensive study. And Israel is a good place to study this because they have probably, I think, a higher percentage of their population vaccinated than maybe any country in the world right now. And by the way, they're also having the biggest outbreak of COVID. So despite everybody being vaccinated, you have a lot of people coming down with COVID. But they had a lot of people to study in their survey here. And what they concluded was that vaccinated people are 13 times as likely to become infected with COVID and 27 times as likely to have symptomatic infections as people who just have natural immunities. So what that means is natural immunity is better than the vaccine. Now, the vaccine also has risks. There are people who have died from the vaccine. So if you're a young person and you don't have a lot of other underlying health issues, that would make you especially susceptible to potentially dying from COVID, you're a normal, young, healthy person, the risk of dying from the vaccine is probably similar to the risk of dying from COVID if you're young and healthy. Now, maybe it's still a little bit greater with COVID, but the risks are so infinitesimally small that doesn't even matter. It's like the risk of getting struck by lightning or the risk of, you know, getting killed by a shark. I mean, is it possible that when I go in the ocean, a shark could kill me? I suppose. I mean, two or three people die something like every year from shark attacks. But that doesn't stop me from going in the ocean just because I might be killed by a shark. So and I think I would rather die from COVID than be killed by a shark. I mean, even though being killed by a shark, maybe that's quicker I mean, it just seems so horrific of a way to go that I would rather die of COVID. And at least if I got COVID, maybe the death would be a little bit more slowly. I could get my financial affairs in order, tie up any loose ends. I mean, say goodbye to anybody I want to say goodbye to, as opposed to just being in the ocean. And then next thing I know, I'm shark food and that's it. So I would prefer COVID, but I still go swimming. As horrific as being mauled to death by a shark is, I'm willing to take the risk because I know how small that risk is. Right. So people are people take small risks of death all the time. And I think that would be the case for young, healthy people not being vaccinated. They only run a very small risk of getting COVID and dying. But if they do get COVID and survive, which is the most likely scenario, they will be much better immunized going forward. So they're far less likely to get it a second time than if they just had gotten vaccinated. And they're far less likely to be symptomatic if they get it a second time, as opposed to somebody who has the vaccine. So in other words, it is better for society if young, healthy people get COVID and recover, as opposed to having young, healthy people take the vaccine. So if you're concerned about herd immunity and the national health, we want the young, healthy people getting COVID and recovering. We just don't want them infecting other people who are not young and healthy before they recover, which is why I think it does make sense for people who are older, right? If you're in your 70s, 80s, or if you have a lot of these other factors, you're really obese, you have diabetes, you have some of these other health issues that make you particularly vulnerable to COVID, well, then it makes sense to take the vaccine because the vaccine does make it less likely that you would get COVID. And it does mean that if you do get it, the symptoms will be more mild. See, when you are unhealthy, you can't afford to take the risk of natural immunity because the risk of COVID is much greater. When you're young and healthy, it isn't a risk. So you're better off getting COVID than getting vaccinated. And so that's why this policy doesn't even make sense from a health perspective is because in many cases, you're forcing people to take unnecessary risks and you're exposing people to a vaccine that don't even need it. And I think the main reason that you're getting all of this push to get everybody vaccinated is because the pharmaceutical industry has bought and paid for the FDA and they are making a fortune 
selling these vaccines. And now they're going to make an even bigger fortune selling the boosters and the boosters for the boosters and who knows how long. And so they've corrupted government. They've captured this regulatory body, which is one of the reasons that we shouldn't even have an FDA. We need to let the free market decide these things. Let doctors and patients decide how they want to deal with COVID. Not the government, not pharmaceutical companies in cahoots with the government. I want pharmaceutical companies in free, fair competition with one another without any government involvement whatsoever. I mean, there are other ways to prevent COVID that are not related to vaccines. There's other ways to treat COVID. A lot of these ways are much less expensive. They don't involve new prescription drugs that cost a lot of money. And if they don't generate a lot of revenues for these individual pharmaceutical companies that are in bed with the government, well, they want to block information or block access that may lead people in another direction, which is one of the reasons too, I'm even hesitant to talk about this stuff because anytime on social media, anybody questions this false narrative of the efficacy of vaccines and why everybody needs to be vaccinated, you immediately ghosted from the internet, right? Because the government is shutting down any opposition, which is more proof that the opposition is probably right. Because if the opposition was wrong, there'd be no reason to cover it up. Just let it out and just expose it as wrong. But if the opposition is correct, if they have the research and the science to back it up, then the only thing you could do is shut them up by making sure that people don't have access to that information. Otherwise, your lies will be exposed. But this is all just the latest example of how the government never lets a crisis go to waste, how the government exploits every crisis. They are using COVID and the potential health threat that this disease represents to gain more control over our lives, to expand their power, their scope, and to further limit and restrict individual freedom, individual liberty, which is a perfect segue for my final conversation. And that has to do with recalling the events of September 11th, 2001, because tomorrow is September 11th, 2021, and it will be 20 years to the day that the terrorists attacked the World Trade Centers as well as the Pentagon and whatever the fourth target was, the White House, I think it was supposed to be, and that plane ended up going down in a field. And it's really hard for me, too, to believe that 20 years have already gone by. I mean, like most people, I remember everything that happened that day. I remember it like it was yesterday, even though I wasn't in New York. I was living out in California. I was in Newport Beach, and it happened really early in the morning my time. But of course, I get up really early in the morning because I was working market hours. But I still recall everything that really happened that day. I don't recall anything about the days that were before it or after, right? When something that dramatic happens, you tend to recall it. And I can imagine the people who were even more closely connected to it than I was. But 20 years, too, is a long time in my life. My oldest son, Spencer, who's 19, he wasn't even alive when September 11th happened in 2001. So those 20 years really went by. And of course, a lot of other things have happened during my life. But I wanted to reflect a little bit on those events in a little bit of a different manner than the way pretty much everybody else is remembering it. And I certainly don't want to disrespect any of the Americans who died on that horrific day. I mean, to me, it's the closest thing to Pearl Harbor that we've ever experienced. And in fact, maybe worse than Pearl Harbor in a sense that how many civilian people died in the way that they died. So I certainly don't want to take anything away from those deaths, the tragedy, also the deaths of the people who responded and tried to uh, help the people and the families who are still living now 20 years after that tragedy. But I want to talk about it from a different angle because it's very relevant to what's going on now with COVID. And that is the way the U.S. government exploited the tragedy of September 11th to dramatically increase the size of government while minimizing individual liberties and freedom. And I always say that America lost a lot more freedom as a result of September 11th, not from the terrorists, but from our own government. So our own government actually helped the terrorists achieve their objective because they always said that they hated us for our freedom. They didn't like it because we were so free. That's why they attacked us. Well, because they attacked us, we're now a lot less free, but not because of the attack, but because of the way the government responded to the attack. So 
Instead of losing, the terrorists actually won. They accomplished their objective because we did all the dirty work for them. And here's what I'm referring to is what happened in the aftermath of September 11th. And again, this is under a Republican president, George W. Bush. So a Republican did this, not a Democrat, although there were Democrats in Congress that went along with it, but there was a Republican leading the charge. But we used September 11th to dramatically increase the size of the U.S. government, the way we're now using the tragedy of COVID. And as I think we're probably making the COVID situation worse (laughs) with the way we are responding, certainly we're making the economy worse and we're diminishing individual liberty in a way that may be long lasting and may be around long after COVID is cured. We're not going to be cured of all of this loss of liberty that resulted Same thing with September 11th. So let's start with some of the things that happened after September 11th. One was the beginning of the TSA, right? All the people now that are at the airports that make life so miserable when you want to board a plane, right? Now, a lot of people would say, but Peter, we haven't had uh, a terrorist attack over the last 20 years. Nobody has hijacked a plane and crashed into the building, so it must be working. Well, nobody did that before 9-11 either. It's only happened once. So you can't really say anything about what would have happened had we not done this. It's certainly possible that we wouldn't have had any more of these situations, even if there was no TSA. I mean, personally, I think there were certain sensible things that could have been done, like sealing the cockpit doors, arming the pilots. There are things that really could have discouraged terrorism. What I think they're doing now with the TSA especially since you can't even profile people and have more scrutiny to young Arab men who are probably more likely to commit those type of acts than, let's say, an elderly white woman, right, who's probably not going to do it. Everybody has to be treated just as suspiciously. I remember one time where my daughter, who was an infant at a time in a stroller, they selected her. They pulled her number for special screening. I, I remember watching them. They were patting her down. She was in a diaper. And they're like treating her like she's a potential terrorist and not even looking at that this is an infant. So the whole thing is ridiculous. But this has completely driven up the cost of transportation in this country. And it's made the experience a lot less enjoyable. So we're wasting a ton of money on this big government agency that we only have because we did this to ourselves following 9-11. There are a lot of easier, less expensive, less intrusive ways to make air travel less likely to be a subject to a terrorist attack. But that's not what we're doing. The government just said, hey, we're going to get bigger. We're going to hire all these people. And now we got the TSA. Another thing we got was the Department of Homeland Security. It did not exist until 9-11. We do not need a Department of Homeland Security. We already got a Department of Defense. I mean, what is the Defense Department defending if not the homeland? See, the problem is, Our Defense Department spends too much money on offense in places like Afghanistan and not enough money on defending the homeland. We didn't need a new agency to do the job that the existing agency was supposed to do. What we needed to do was bring more of our troops home back then and make sure that the Defense Department was more focused on homeland security, not set up a whole new department to cost all sorts of additional money that we have to support for a second Defense Department called the Department of Homeland Security. And who knows what else these guys are wasting their time on. I know firsthand, I got a visit from two Homeland Security agents, actually came to my house last week, knocked on the door unannounced in Puerto Rico, looking for my wife. And the reason they were looking for her was the FDA intercepted a package that she ordered online. And it was a box of beauty products from China. She paid $50 for these products. And apparently the product is not FDA approved. So it was intercepted by the FDA because they want to make sure everything is approved. And I guess they were concerned that maybe she was going to distribute it because I think there were 30 of them in the box because she got a good price to $50 because she bought in quantity. And she said, hey, I'll just stock up. I mean, we're stocking up on a lot of things in our house because I know that prices are just going to go up, so we might as well buy the stuff we need now. But I'm also afraid that a lot of the stuff that we use regularly may at some point be hard to get because the supply is down. And so a lot of times we buy stuff in bulk, but maybe they thought she was going to resell this stuff 
and it's not FDA approved. So they seized it and then they sent these agents to our house to personally deliver uh, this notice. What a waste of time. They wanted to know what we wanted to do. Did we want to you know, fight this? Did we want to try to prevent the property from being forfeited, in which case we were going to have to get lawyers involved and do all sorts of stuff. And God knows what that was going to cost. Fortunately, there was an option to just abandon the property and let them seize it, which is fine. It's only $50. So we lost $50. But this is what the Department of Homeland Security is doing. What a waste of time. Who cares if we bought $50 worth of beauty products? What difference does it make? This is what they're doing. Right. So they have to figure out something to do. And this is it. So we got the Department of Homeland Security. We also got this 20 year war in Afghanistan, which supposedly is now coming to an end. But we'll see if that's actually the case. But we've been 20 years. We spent two trillion dollars. What a complete waste. Yes, I do believe that we should have retaliated against those who helped to orchestrate and mastermind the September 11th attacks. I mean, that was an act of war, and we can't let that go without retaliating. But that doesn't mean we're in Afghanistan for 20 years. That was our own ridiculous decision. We decided to do that. We did that to ourselves, not the terrorists. We're the ones that blew that $2 trillion, and who knows how many additional American lives were needlessly lost, including, I think, the 12 or 13 who were just lost on the ridiculous way that we pulled out of the Afghan situation. But as bad as all this stuff is, the absolute worst result of September 11th, apart from the personal tragedies of the individuals and the families involved, is the Patriot Act. That passed in the aftermath and the hysteria of 9-11. Never could such a piece of unpatriotic legislation ever have been passed but for those attacks and the mood that the country was in. And the reason this bill was so bad, and it also spawned more bills that were written later, is because it completely destroyed Americans' individual liberty. I mean, what was left of the Fourth Amendment is gone. Americans have no privacy. Nothing you do, none of your papers, none of your affairs are private. The government spies on every single thing you do. And the government was able to impose harsh penalties on private companies who do not spy on and then rat out their customers. This is horrific legislation. Civil libertarians should be up in arms, but they're not. I mean, they didn't oppose it initially because nobody wanted to oppose the Patriot Act during time of war, despite the fact that it was as unpatriotic an act as you could possibly come up with. But then once these acts come in, I mean, even some of the people who opposed it originally, once it's there, they never want to get rid of it, right? It's like nothing is as permanent as a temporary government program. Even if you only believed in this thing because you thought it would be temporary, because you thought it would be necessary to fight terrorists, but you thought that it would sunset or it would never be renewed, It's always renewed because once again, I keep using the same metaphor, but once the camel's nose is under the tent, that's it. It's the whole camel is taking up residency in that tent. And this is the stinkiest camel of them all, this Patriot Act. And the real purpose of the Patriot Act, and even if it wasn't the initial purpose, this is what it's being used for now. It's not about stopping terrorists from having access to our financial markets. I mean, There's hardly any terrorists out there, and I'm sure the terrorists that are out there, they don't need access to our financial markets. They could finance their terrorist activities without getting involved in the U.S. banking system or the U.S. brokerage system. What all of these anti-privacy, anti-freedom laws are all about is enforcing tax compliance. That's it. It's all to make sure that people are paying the taxes that the government claims that they owe. Now, you may think, oh, well, that's fine, right? Because everybody should pay the taxes that they're legally required to pay. Right. But we shouldn't give up our freedom and our privacy to make that happen because those rights are more important than the government getting every single dime that they're entitled to. I would rather a few people get away with cheating on their taxes than the entire country have to surrender their constitutional rights and make the government more powerful and more oppressive. And here's something that a lot of people don't even think about. One of the best ways to keep government from taxing us too much is to make it somewhat easy to evade the tax if the tax is too high. Because if the taxes are reasonable and low 
and there are penalties for evasion, when you compare the penalties to the benefit of evading, a lot of people will decide, hey, I'm just gonna pay the tax. It's not that high, and I don't wanna take a chance of getting caught just to save a small amount of money. But when governments have very, very high taxes, in some cases, individuals can't even survive if they pay the taxes that they are theoretically required to pay. And the only way to make it is to not pay. And so they then are motivated, incentivized to avoid those taxes. And the government knows this. The government knows at some point, if we make the taxes too high, compliance is going to go down. People are going to try not to comply. Plus, they're going to think it's unfair anyway. But if the government is able to make it very difficult for people not to comply because of all the spying that they're able to do, then it actually makes it easier for the government to have higher tax rates than might otherwise be the case if it wasn't as easy to force the compliance. And so here is the irony of it, because the government always says, hey, you know, these tax cheats, because of them, everybody else is paying more. I never believed that because the government doesn't even care what it collects in taxes. The government spends whatever it wants, right? The taxes are an afterthought. So just because somebody is paying less taxes, that doesn't mean you're paying more. But I do think that because there are people who will evade the taxes, that that is keeping a lid on the rates because the government knows the higher the rates, the more people are going to cheat. And so to prevent a lot of people from cheating, they have to keep the rates reasonable. Again, that's another reason I talk about tax havens. The government likes to blame tax havens for higher tax rates. They say, hey, if we didn't have all these tax havens around the world where people were moving their money to get lower tax rates, you could have lower rates here. But because all these tax dodgers are taking advantage of tax havens, well, now everybody else has to pay more to pick up their slack. Again, that is a lie. It's the tax havens that keep everybody else somewhat limited to how high they can raise taxes. Because at some point, taxes get so high, more and more people decide to take advantage of those tax havens. But at a lower rate of tax, those tax havens are not as appealing. But the existence of those tax havens is crucial to keeping a lid on the higher taxes of the non-tax havens, which is why the non-tax havens want to do whatever they can to get rid of those tax havens so that they can jack up the taxes on everybody else. And they convince everybody else that if we could only get rid of the tax havens, your taxes would go down. It's actually the opposite. To the extent that the governments succeed in getting rid of all the tax havens, then everybody else's taxes are gonna go up. (laughs) 